Because chapter 17 kind of marks the close of the first section of the book of Leviticus, a section in which God explains to his people the way that he was to be approached as their God. The tabernacle in the midst of the camp, God going on the record, this is our relationship, the essence of it, the protocols for it. Because this is a transitional chapter for us, I do think it would be appropriate if we take just a few minutes in order to recap what we've been examining over the last 16 weeks. Yes, this is the 17th study in Leviticus. Leviticus begins with seven chapters detailing for us five specific offerings the people were to make at this tabernacle before the Lord. In chapter 1, we have recorded the olah, or the burnt offering, which illustrated the sacrifice that God would graciously make for us, his people, to atone for our sins. As you look through chapter 1, you'll note that God would have to offer something costly. The firstborn of his own flock. Jesus, as the sacrifice, would have to endure something ghastly. He would be slaughtered. But in the end, His work on our behalf would have to be accepted, we see, in this Olah offering by faith. Following this, Leviticus chapter 2 documents the Miha offering, the grain offering, the meal offering, which articulated now the appropriate way we were to respond to God for His demonstration of grace in the first chapter, the burnt offering. God's sacrifice to make atonement for our sins would now yield a natural response in our lives back to Him. It's a worship offering, a free will offering, not mandated. Now pivoting from the Ola offering of grace and the Miha offering of response to God's grace, chapter 3 of Leviticus lays out the Shalem, or the peace offering. The idea behind this offering was not that it achieved a peace with God. Rather, it was an offering made before the Lord manifesting from a peace that had already been attained. Something God had already achieved on our behalf. In a profound way, God, in this chapter, chapter 3 of Leviticus, in the peace offering, is explaining, he's articulating how we as his people, experiencing his sacrifice, enjoying his grace, also experience his lasting peace. Chapters 5 through 7 transition to the last two of these five offerings, which were mandated. We have the trespass offering as well as the sin offering. Well, the sin offering was focused on creating a path for a person to repent of their sins of nature, unintentional sins, and receive thereby God's forgiveness. The trespass offering was instituted to remove the weight of a person's guilt for intentional wrongdoings. This is why with the trespass offering, in addition to making a sacrifice, it was also stipulated you had to make restitution for those you had harmed. After articulating to Moses the protocols for this sacrificial system, that was to occur specifically at this new tent of meeting. Leviticus 8 quickly moves away from seven chapters of legalese to an active narrative that lasts a grand total of eight days and carries us through the end of Leviticus 10, 8, 9, and 10. And by the way, these three chapters document some really crazy happenings. In chapter 8, Moses designates Aaron and his boys, his four sons, to be the priesthood. 
To do this, he adorns them with new robes in front of the entire congregation of Israel. Not only were they charged as the priests with the operational management of the tabernacle, the sacrifices, but it would be their job to also teach the people what things were clean, what things were unclean. After a consecration process that lasted seven days, on the eighth day, chapters 9 and 10 record their first day on the job. There is no doubt this day reached a crescendo, a high point, when fire came out from the Holy of Holies, the presence of the Lord, and consumed, devoured their sacrifices. It's equally true, things quickly took a somber note, when this same fire came out from the Holy of Holies and consumed Nadab and Abihu, two-fifths of the priesthood, because they had offered something profane before the Lord. Leviticus 16 picks up the narrative, where chapter 10 leaves off, The deaths here of Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, set the stage for protocols God would give concerning the Day of Atonement. This one day a year that the high priest was to go into the Holy of Holies with incense first, and then following the incense, atonement blood for himself, and then blood for the people. An incredible scene, an incredible thing. We looked at it last week. But between chapters 10 and 16, we have... 11 through 15, these holiness codes. Again, God tells the priests at the end of chapter 10, it's your job to articulate to the people things prohibited, things permissible, clean and unclean. But now I'm going to articulate what things, that these things are, what they look like. So on a variety of various topics, we have these designations. In chapter 11, we have the dietary guidelines. By prohibiting certain things uh, from their diet, God was making it clear in the East, You were what you ate. So what you ate was important. It was significant. It articulated. So prohibiting scavengers from their diet, as well as predators from their diet, God was letting the children of Israel know up front, I don't want you to be a scavenger. I don't want you to be a predator. Instead, I want you to trust in me for your provisions. In chapter 12, God lays out certain protocols for a woman. Some protections following her giving birth to a child. In chapters 13 through 14, God explains to the priests how they were to diagnose Sarath, leprosy, the judgment of God. Also laying out how they were to to diagnose a, a leper being cleansed. Chapter 15, we get the protocols for how they were to handle bodily fluids, discharges. Indeed, it is what comes out of a man that makes a man unclean, not what goes into him that defiles him. The second half of the book of Leviticus, which will begin with chapter 18, unpacks, it pivots. So the first half we have our relationship with God, this relationship founded upon God's grace. Chapters 18 through 27 then pivot to how our relationship with God should impact our relationship with one another, with each other. God's grace not only changes our relationship with Him, but it changes everything about our lives, how we deal with one another. Leviticus 17 concludes the first section. And it does so in an interesting way. By a lengthy discussion on the sanctity and the holiness of blood. Now, up front, that makes some sense, doesn't it? We have seen at this juncture in Leviticus blood quite a bit. 
88 times in the book of Leviticus, you will find the word blood. blood. It is a very bloody, bloody book. So now discussing the sanctity of blood, the holiness of blood, and the context of the important role that blood played in the sacrificial system, as well as the, the role that blood played in the designating of things being clean or unclean, the important role we saw blood play in the Day of Atonement. That apart from the blood, there is no atonement for man. This idea of blood and our relationship with God is where we conclude the first section. Now, the chapter's not long. It's weighty, but it's not long in length. So I want to start this morning by just reading it in its entirety, and then we're going to unpack the specifics. Verse 1, Leviticus 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, the high priest, and to his sons, the other priests, and speak to all of the children of Israel and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox, lamb, or goat in the camp, or who kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle before the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood. That man shall be cut off from among his people to the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices which they offer in an open field that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest to offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. Verse 6, And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and burn the fat for a sweet aroma unto the Lord. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons, after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Verse 8, also you shall say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who offers a burnt offering or sacrifices and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off. From among his people. Verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar. To make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel. No one among you shall eat blood. Nor any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Verse 13. Whatever man of the children of Israel. Or of the strangers who dwell among you. Who hunts and catches any animal or bird. That may be eaten. He shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust, for it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off, verse 15 and 16. And every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beast whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. As you seek to unpack what really is an interesting chapter, you should note that God is wrapping up this section of Leviticus, dealing with his relationship with Israel by outlawing 
three specific behaviors. If you're a note taker, you might want to jot them down. It gives you the blueprint, the outline for the chapter. One, God here in chapter 17 forbids them from eating meat that had not been first presented before the Lord at the tabernacle. Two, no sacrifices were ever to be made by the people of God in a location other than this tabernacle, this tent of meeting. Three, eating blood was strictly prohibited. Now first, in chapter 17, the people of God are forbidden from eating meat that had not been first presented before the Lord at the tabernacle. Now, in our text, God's instructions are abundantly clear. Whether you wanted ox or lamb or a goat for dinner, God instructs that you first bring the animal to the door of the tabernacle as a peace offering before the Lord. Now, admittedly, this particular mandate seems incredibly odd. And if we're being honest, not very practical. Every bit of meat you had to eat, you had to first go to the tabernacle and offer it. Is that really what God is saying? Yes, that's exactly what God is saying. Now, it's important to keep in mind that the people receiving this instruction was a group of about one to two million Jews located in the middle of nowhere. They're out in the desert, the wilderness. The reality was that food was scarce, so scarce that God had to provide them daily provisions in the form of manna from heaven. To this point in Numbers chapter 11, the people had grown so sick of only having manna to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner that they demanded, God provide us some meat. We're sick of manna. We're sick of bread. We need meat. And so because they were complaining, Numbers 11 records how God's like, you want meat? I'll give you meat. And he sends quail. They had so much quail. Quail was coming out of their noses. I mean, quail was, you want some meat? I'll give you some meat. Here you go. But they were craving some meat. Interesting in the context of this prohibition in Leviticus 17. In fact, eating ox, lamb, or a goat and this culture, at this time, this place, and in this space, eating any of these three animals would have really been kind of counterintuitive. It would have been a luxury done only, only in kind of the, the rarest of occasions, and here's why. These three animals that we find prohibited, well, they served other functions, important functions. You see, ox, and again, you're a children of Israel, uh, liberated from Egypt, making your way to the land of promise, you get your, your, everything you own, you're, you're carrying with you. Ox were important because they pulled carts. They made transportation easier. You thought long and hard before you, before you ate your vehicle. Aside, aside from that, a lamb. Now, hey, lamb chops. I can get behind some lamb chops. But in this culture... You, they didn't have Old Navy to swing through and get a new fleece. Like a, a lamb was a renewable source of a material that you needed, that you were dependent upon. So again, lamb chop or like a perpetual supply of socks. I need socks. I don't have Amazon Prime. I can't order them in the wilderness. So you thought long and hard before you killed a lamb. Additionally, a goat. 
The goat provided milk, which was sustenance. Again, these animals that if you're going to kill them, you need to bring them to, like you didn't kill them often. So there wasn't a lot of, of hunting, a lot of game. There's just too many people and you're in the wilderness. There's not a lot of animals around anyway. They're eating manna from heaven. The animals being prohibited here served other functions. Like get the full picture, some context for the chapter. One additional component to the command also centers on the fact that what's happening is providing a practical provision for the priesthood. Remember the Levites, the tribe of Levi, they, their needs had to be met by the other 11 tribes of Israel. The purpose is that they were to spend their time at the tabernacle dealing with the, the things of the Lord, making the offerings and the sacrifices. So their provisions, their food, practically. They weren't even given a spot of land in the, the promised land. Their needs were to be met by the other 11 tribes so that they could spend their time, their focus, their energies on the house of the Lord. And so there's a practical component here. If you recall... The end of Leviticus 7, I'm sure it's been fresh on your mind, but the classification of an animal as being a peace offering, and you'll note that we saw that here in the text, verse 5, it wasn't just that you brought your animal, it wasn't just that it was sacrificed, it was to be a peace offering. But the peace offering, according to Leviticus 7, it would result in the fat, the kidneys, the liver being offered to the Lord. The parts of the animal that would not be healthy for you to eat, because the way that they free roamed free range. They were given to the Lord. So the parts of the animal, they were sacrificed to God, consumed on the altar. But the rest of the meat would then be divided according to the peace offering between whom? Well, the worshiper, you'd get the majority of it, but specifically the breast of the animal and the right thigh would be given to the priest. Again, this stipulation Laid out in Leviticus 7, it ensured that the priest had meat to eat as well. And then it also gave you the, the protocols for how long you had to eat the meat. You know, by the third day, it's bad, it's rancid, you should get rid of it. So it wasn't just that you brought the animal to the tabernacle before you, you ate it. But it was to be a peace offering. There were bigger things at work. Another aspect to this protocol that I find striking was how deeply serious God was about it. Did you, did you pick up on some of the language in, in the chapter? According to verse 4, the Lord states that a failure to obey, so eating oxtail soup without a trip to the tabernacle, this would be the consequence. It would result in the guilt of bloodshed being imputed to the man resulting in him being swiftly cut off from the people. It's pretty heavy. Amazingly, an unsanctioned rack of lamb could result in a person's excommunication from the nation of Israel. You would be cut off. Now what makes this heavy-handed approach so strange to me is that by the time the children of Israel finally do enter the land of promise, God actually decides to do away with this first stipulation altogether. It seems like it's only really applicable for the children of Israel in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, let me read you an interesting section of Scripture. 
We're told that when the Lord your God enlarges your border, as He has promised you, and you say, let me eat meat, because you long to eat meat, you may eat as much meat as your heart desires. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put His name is too far from you, so if the location of the tabernacle later the temple, it's not real convenient to get to, well, you can slaughter, God says, from your herd and from your flock, which the Lord has given you, just as I've commanded you, and you may eat within your gates as much as your heart desires. Again, context helps us make sense of what's happening here. Don't forget, the group of people receiving these laws were literally just a few months beforehand slaves in Egypt. For 400 years, they had been really nothing more than an ethnic minority immersed in Egyptian society. 400 years is a long time, folks, to be in one place. Yes, the Hebrew people living in Egypt maintained some of their patriarchal traditions, but after multiple generations, there is no question that at the time of the Exodus, the Hebrews, while ethnically unique, were culturally Egyptian. And in fact, this is what makes Leviticus important And it's much more macro idea. You see, God is taking a group of people who were Egyptian. And he's crafting them into something different. He's forming a new society. He's stripping away a former identity by imparting through all of these rules and regulations a new way of viewing life, a new way of viewing the world, a new way of viewing a relationship with God totally different from anything they had known in Egypt. There is a contrast. There is no question that one of the biggest challenges to this transformation of the Hebrew people would be deprogramming them from a pagan religious belief system that they had learned in Egypt. This is why in God's deliverance of the people Moses going before Pharaoh, let my people go. No, okay, here's a plague. The ten plagues that we have, it's not an accident with this in mind that each of them were designed specifically to demonstrate the true God of Israel's superiority over what? Ten popular Egyptian deities. God is trying to demonstrate that He is greater than this religious system they're accustomed to. And yet, you know, Religious beliefs of all beliefs are really hard to shake. It's a truth. Case in point, Exodus chapter 32. Let me read you something. We're told that when the people of Israel saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people come to Aaron and they say, Come, make us gods to go before us. Immediately, like we're back into paganism, polytheism. So Aaron said, break off golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring them to me. So the people did did as he instructed. They bring them to Aaron. When he had received the gold from their hand, he fashioned it by engraving, with an engraving tool, making a molden calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar. He made a proclamation. He says, tomorrow's a feast to Jehovah. Interesting. So they rose early the next day, offered burnt offerings to this golden calf. 
They brought peace offerings. The people sat down, they ate, and they drank, and they rose to play. They had a party. My point in bringing up this story is, is really twofold. First, the golden calf debacle has just happened about a month before Leviticus. So like our time frame here, these things are happening rapidly. This is very fresh on everyone's mind. Again, amazing that 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 same Aaron then becomes in charge of the tabernacle. God's grace. The calf maker gets put in charge of the tabernacle. God has a way of doing things. But the second point in bringing up the story is the reality that Aaron here, he fashioned the gold. Have you ever thought it's interesting why a calf? Like of all the things to make there in the wilderness, why a calf? Or literally, in the original language, a bull. It was about a three-year-old bull. Well, it illustrates for us how susceptible the people were to their pagan religious programming. They're in the, the wilderness. Moses has gone up. He's gone for too long. Immediately, hey, make us a deity we're familiar with, that we understand. You know, one of the most important deities in Egyptian mythology was Apis, the bull god. Undoubtedly, this susceptibility to paganism is what's driving here God's commands in chapter 17. In verse 7, the Lord will actually say His purposes here was that they would no longer make sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. In the Hebrew, the word demon can be translated as he-goat and was likely a reference to Mendes, the goat god, or in Greek mythology, this would be pan. You know, that's, that's where we get the word panic. Panic, the goat god. Again, a key to understanding what God is doing in this passage is to remember in these pagan religious practices, it was not uncommon for ancient people to deify an animal and then sacrifice those animals drinking their blood to gain power. Knowing the Jews had been liberated from such a religious culture, God demands here what? It's brilliant on the the part of God. But He's demanding His inclusion in the killing and eating of any animal. Why? Because He's trying to safeguard against these practices, these tendencies. This would then explain why after wandering the wilderness for 40 years, after the initial group who had been liberated from Egypt die out on account of their lack of faith, the next generation, their kids, who knew nothing of Egypt, who knew nothing of Egyptian mythology, would no longer need this type of a mandate. Before I get to our second point, I do want to highlight a larger principle that we can draw from this point. You see, any time you find yourself in a dynamic, and don't miss this, where there is this thing that could easily pull you back into a former lifestyle, group of friends, scene, I mean, you gotta fill it, you gotta define for yourself this thing. So God has liberated you from Egypt. He's liberated you from the world. He's freed you from things that were destroying you. You've been set free. But God knows there's this tendency that you'll revert back if you're not careful. And you know that there's this thing in my life 
that I'm worried about. Because this thing, man, it could trip me. It could draw me right back into what I don't want to be drawn back into, but I don't know how to deal with it because it's an essential part of my life. I can't get rid of it, can't get away from it. So what do I do, Zach, about it? Ah, this text tells us very easy. Again, children of Israel have a propensity for paganism, pagan religious custom associated with animals, killing animals, etc., deifying animals. So God's like, don't kill any of them. Don't do anything with them if I'm not involved with it. So let's safeguard this tendency by including me always. The point is that if there's this thing, the easiest way to safeguard that thing drawing you back in is to just include God and that thing. Let, let me give you an example for this. Let's say at some point it was money and the security that money brought with it that was your God. You didn't call it your God, but all points and purposes, it was a functional deity. It had control. It's where you worshipped. And God set you free from that. I mean, you've been liberated from that. You know the easiest way to safeguard from sliding back into that idolatry is to include God and the way you handle your finances moving forward. I know money can be my problem, so the easiest way for me to deal with my money, making sure I rule it and it doesn't rule me, is I'm going to give God a first fruits. When I get a check, first thing, that God, it's your money that you've trusted to me to steward. I know my tendency will be to worship and place too much. So to do this, I just got to include you in my finances, every part of it. Here's another example. Let's say a relationship was your God. Again, you wouldn't define it as that, but it was. And sex, probably the unholy sacrament. And it was a toxic relationship. About destroyed you. God set you free. And now here you are entering into a new relationship and you're wanting to ensure the same tendencies that ruin the first one don't ruin the second one. You know the key? Include God. Include God. Come to church together. Worship together. Have communion together. Pray together. The more you include God in the relationship, the less room there is for these toxic things to draw you back into places you've been freed from. Secondly, God is clear in Leviticus 17 that no sacrifices were to ever be made by His people in a location other than the tent of meeting. According to verses 8 and 9, the Lord stipulated that anyone who offers a burnt offering or sacrifices and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it before the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. For the same reasons as before, this was a serious matter to the Lord. One that would also result in a person being excommunicated from the people of God. Not only had God here established a system by which he was to be approached at a place through a sacrifice, but he's also been explicit how the sacrifices were to be made and how they weren't to be made. God could only be approached at a tabernacle through a sacrifice with a priest involved. This was not something you could just go it alone or do it as you will. In his commentary on this passage, David Guzik writes the following. He says, in the pagan world at that time, it was customary to offer sacrifices wherever one pleased. Altars were customarily built on high hills and forested areas or other special places. 
Yet now with a centralized location of worship, the Israelites were not allowed to sacrifice any way they pleased. They had to come to the tabernacle and have their sacrifice administered by a priest. One of the aspects to this that I find interesting is how in a really weird way we're kind of seeing the development of an important theology. Like there's an important idea in the Bible that takes a significant step kind of in an odd place. You know, when it came to the worship of God, think back to the patriarchs, the book of Genesis. When it came to the worship of God, the interactions of man and God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they sacrificed wherever they wanted, didn't they? Like we see this, if you read through Genesis, there was a relationship with God, an interaction with God, but, the, but there was not a specific location or place. God would work in Abraham's life, and he'd build an altar and make a sacrifice, and boom, that was there. And then the next time it happened, wherever that happened to be, it happened again. And yet now, we see a change. You couldn't sacrifice just anywhere. There was only one place. And the fundamental difference seems to be that God's presence became more accessible. That God's presence in this new context was permanently among His people. With now the stipulation that He be approached at a place, the tabernacle, and in a way, through a sacrifice administered by the priest. Abraham. Man, it was back and forth. It was all over the place. But now things are different. What's most glorious about this and why God takes these things seriously is that ultimately, the place, tabernacle, the mode, the sacrifice, the priest, his involvement, God's very particular that those three elements had to be involved really because they all pointed to Jesus. It's why Leviticus 17 is a non-negotiable. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus boldly declared for all the world something no other religious leader dared say. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father any other way except through me. God's saying here in Leviticus 17, there is only one way, all pointing to Jesus. Again, I, w- I want you to know, friend, that there is only one place that you can come to gain access to God. Only one place. Only one door. And it's at the cross of Calvary. It's the only place. And aside from that, there is only one sacrifice that suffices. Not one you make, or have made, or thinking about making. No, there's only one sacrifice that works. And it's the one that Jesus made for you. And there's only one priest who can grant you access. He doesn't wear a a hat and live in a Vatican. No, his name is Jesus. It is only Jesus that can grant you access to the throne of grace and the heavenly realm. His name is Jesus. C.H. McIntosh, one of my favorite commentators on the the Pentateuch. He wrote this. He says, "The, the moral of this is plain. There is one place where God has appointed to meet the sinner. That is the cross. The antitype of the bronze and altar. 
There and there alone has God's claim upon the life been duly recognized. To reject this meeting place is to bring down judgment upon oneself. It is to trample underfoot the just claims of God and to arrogate to oneself a right to life which all have forfeited. It is important to see this. There is only one place. One man, Jesus. Aside from the fulfillment of these things being found in the Lord, there is a much larger concept also at work that is still relevant in our New Testament context. You see, God has established an order to the way that our spiritual lives are to function that today is equally non-negotiable. There is a way that things are designed to work. Not left up to your whim or your determination. In fact, it's, it's impossible for us to determine the way that the spiritual realm should work when God reigns over it. You see, your spiritual growth and development, if you want to grow, become more like Jesus, it only happens one way. God order it such. There's only one way it happens. It doesn't happen by you going up on top of some mountain and smoking some weed to get close to the Lord. That's not how God structured it to happen. Well, that's how I do it. You're worshiping a demon, my friend, because that's not how God structured it to happen. God said if you want to grow spiritually, if you want to develop spiritually, it's only through the washing of the Word of God. It can happen no other way. Well, I don't really like reading my Bible. Well, you also don't like growing spiritually. Because one demands the other because God structured it as such. If you were in Israel and it was like, yeah, man, I, you know, I just don't want to go to the tabernacle. I piled up some stones. I cut that heifer, put him on. We're going to have some time with the Lord right here with a bonfire. God was, found that so detestable. They knocked your altar over. They sent you packing. You're no longer a part of the family. You're gone. Hit the road, Jack. Friends, spiritual, spiritual fruit, godliness. How does that manifest from our lives? Well, God ordered it only one way. Through the indwelling and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. There is no other way but the Spirit of God. Your continued vitality and health as you sojourn through the, the oppressive world was not structured by God to be an on-your-own proposition. Anytime someone's like, man, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. That's akin to you saying, I really like Zach, but I hate Jessica. The two aren't going to happen. You can't love me, but hate my wife. You see, Jesus ordained the church and structured the church to be a place... Yes, where there would be dysfunction. That's why we have a lot of letters written to churches that were dysfunctional 30 years after Jesus rose, right? The church is not a perfect place, but it's still Jesus' bride. So you can't, God didn't structure the Christian experience to be me and Jesus, we're doing this together, I don't need anybody else. No, 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 no. That's not the way it works. That's not the way God structured it. You see, your journey demands sojourners. 
brothers and sisters, a community, a church. Not to preach at you. Not for you to come and just get. But for you to come and receive and also contribute. Place for instruction, encouragement, accountability. Finally, eating blood. As you work your way through Leviticus 17, you find that it was also strictly prohibited. In fact, Leviticus 17 is abundantly clear. Blood was to be treated by God's people with the utmost reverence. Verse 11 and 14, God explains why this is the case. Life, according to this passage, and blood were synonymous. Couldn't have one without the other. God says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And then adds, it's the blood that sustains life. You get the point? (laughs) Blood and life. In this chapter, God wanted the sanctity of life itself recognized and honored by His people through a reverence that they would demonstrate in the way they handled blood. When an animal was killed for its meat, the carcass was to be properly drained of blood before it was eaten. This prohibition against eating blood doesn't mean that you can't have your steak medium. It's about how the blood was prepped, how it was prepared. It was to be drained. All of that happens naturally in the the way we process meat anyway. In Acts 15, the church, working on blending both Gentile and, and Jewish customs, the apostles end up advising that Christians should also abstain from eating blood. More specifically, eating animals that were strangled, not properly bled. Again, you enjoy that medium rare steak. That's not what the prohibition's about. In the event, according to Leviticus 17, that the death of an animal occurred during a hunt, see that, or a catch, God even required respect be shown for the animal in this dynamic by the hunter properly draining the blood there and then burying it by covering it with dust. Again, just the sanctity, this respect for life itself. Life is in the blood. If you take a life, honor the blood. Aside from this, because of its connection with pagan worship and idolatry, in addition to negative health consequences, under no circumstances were God's people to ever eat or like drink to consume, to devour blood. These things were were incorporated in pagan idolatry. In a practical sense, what is being articulated to the children of Israel about blood was a truth that transcended any type of possible scientific or medical understanding that they could have possibly had in that day and age. Think about it for a moment. There was no way any of them could have ever known what God revealed to them, that life was demanding of blood. That life was impossible apart from the existence of blood. No way they would have known it apart from God's revelation. Human blood, I'm going to geek out on you for a minute. Human blood is a fascinating thing. You know, your blood consists of 55% plasma, which helps the cells move throughout your body. 40% red blood cells, which carry oxygen to organs and tissues. 4% platelets, which aid in clotting processes, and 1% white blood cells, which are essential to fighting infections and fostering a healthy immune system. Your blood, amazing. Incredibly, every four months that you are alive, 
your body regenerates for itself an entirely new set of blood. Your blood only lasts about four months. Four months for new red blood cells. Nine days, you you regenerate all new platelets. Anywhere from a few hours to several days, you'll also create a whole new set of white blood cells, depending on how, (laughs) how bad the flu is. Life is truly in the blood. Without blood, you're dead. Without good blood, you're dead. With thick blood, you're dead. You need good blood. On average, your body has about six quarts of blood flowing through a superhighway of veins, arteries, and capillaries. It's quite a design. Your heart, on average, beats about 80 times per minute. I know there are a few of you here that maybe that's not quite the case, but on average, 80 beats a minute. That means that all of your blood, think about this, all of your blood gets cycled through your body in three minutes. By the end of today, your heart will have pumped 2,000 gallons of blood through your body and your blood will have traveled approximately 12,000 miles one day. It's amazing. Blood. Even with our advanced medical knowledge, our understanding, there's a lot about blood we even don't know. Like when you're cut, immediately your central nervous system communicates to your blood, telling it to rush to the spot, to clot around the wound, also sending white blood cells to fight infection. Immediately, instantly, your central nervous system communicates with your blood. We don't know how that happens. Aside from this, the original development of blood is mysterious. Like we know that it's during a narrow window of time in embryonic development that the first blood stem cells form during the fifth week. Those blood cells will give rise to all of the blood cells you'll ever produce in your lifetime. Amazing. But how that happens? Completely unexplainable. Additionally, while each of your parents, you know, have contributed half of the genetic code making you who you are. A baby has neither of its parents' blood. You create your own blood. It is, in fact, your life and your life alone. Amazing. A new life. There's no question life is in the blood. But God carries this idea one step further in our passage by incorporating some theological implications. Because the wages of sin is death, God makes it known that atonement for the human soul is only made possible through the shedding of blood. In fact, Leviticus 17 verse 11, it's a central verse to the book itself, but it establishes a legal concept on which the entire Bible stands. I'll read it for you. God says, for the the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now, as you peel back the implications of this verse, an interesting logic unfolds. First and foremost, within this blessed text, with this verse, God's gift to man is indeed the possibility of atonement. God is saying atonement's possible. That's awesome. Amen and amen. Secondly, while though radical that atonement's possible, He's also evident or clear that the only mechanism that makes atonement 
would be the blood or the death of an innocent sacrifice, which leads to the third point. Since life is in the blood, but the payment for human sin, death, it stands to now reason why the blood of an innocent animal would fall woefully short in providing atonement for man. Obviously, there's a problem there. I don't need just blood of an animal. I need the blood of a human. And yet, because God says it is in the blood that makes atonement, Leviticus 17 establishes for us legal grounds upon which the blood or the death of an innocent human life could actually suffice to make atonement for the human soul. This is the justification for it if a human sacrifice ever existed. In line with what we find here in Leviticus 17, it simply is a reality that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, as we're told in Hebrews, but not just any blood. Again, I think C.H. McIntosh says it better than I could, so I'll read from his commentary. He says, yes, atonement is God's gift to man. And be it carefully noted that this atonement is in the blood and only in the blood. It is not the blood and something else. The word is most explicit. It attributes atonement exclusively to the blood. It is all through the blood of Jesus and nothing less, nothing more, nothing different. It is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. This is conclusive, is God's plan for justification. Of all the concepts that you'll find carried over from the Old Testament to the New Testament, None is more pivotal than the blood of Jesus. Nothing in your life spiritually happens at all, period, apart from the blood. In Romans 5 verse 9, we're justified before God by Jesus' blood. According to 1 Peter 1, we have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, it's through His blood that we have attained the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. For the first time since the Garden of Eden, Ephesians 2 verse 13 declares that you and I, who were once far away from God, had been brought near. How? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1.20, each of us has been reconciled with God. Why? Because Jesus made peace with the Father through the blood of His cross. Aside from these amazing truths, we read in 1 John 1.7, the blood of Christ has what cleansed us from all of sin. It takes on a new picture when you think of the Day of Atonement. In Revelation 1.5, it's declared that Jesus has loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Hebrews 10, we're now given boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The blood, the blood, the blood. It's a central concept in the Old Testament articulated in Leviticus 17. Life is in the blood. It's the entire basis for the New Testament. Friend, the atonement of your sins, it is possible. And it demands blood. But the blood of Jesus. The death of Jesus. Again, with these things in mind, we understand why in Matthew 26... Jesus would take bread, bless it, break it, give it to the disciples and say, take, eat, this is my body. But then he would take the cup, give thanks, give it to them. And then notice what he says. He says, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood. 
of a new covenant, a new way of relating to me, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. Since life is in the blood, Jesus is inviting each of us to accept his life and dwelling ours. We're partaking of something. This morning, I want you to know that Leviticus 17 is what ultimately makes, this is when it gets fun, Leviticus 17 is what ultimately makes the incarnation of Jesus important. Yes, we're going to close Leviticus 17 with a Christmas exhortation. You see, in Jesus, the second sinless man was brought into this world through a miraculous conception when the Virgin Mary conceived. And while fully man, Jesus, that babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, did not possess, my friend, the fallen genetics of the first man, Adam. And that manger was a baby, completely guiltless, for he was divine. You see, on a silent and holy night, somewhere outside of Bethlehem, Mary laid in a simple manger, the most innocent child that had ever been born. And Jesus, the Most High, donned human flesh. Why? Specifically to have our blood flowing through His veins, untainted. As a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, God came to earth to be our necessary sacrifice. How the majesty of that moment there at that stable in Bethlehem would have quickly soured if anyone there had truly known that it would be the blood of that peaceful baby boy fast asleep that would have to be spilt and drained that his life would have to be taken so that you and I might be forgiven. But that's what was required. And why was this so necessary? Why did this have to happen? Leviticus 17, verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it, the Lord says to you, upon the altar, to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood, the blood of Jesus, that makes atonement for you and I. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.